Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, and we've got Ken Gee on. Ken, how you doing? Doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really excited to have you on. You know, you've got a lot of value to add for our listeners. And, you know, I'm really excited because you've been doing this a long time, 24 years, over $2 billion in, in deals. And you just wrote a book specifically to help passive investors or all investors figure out how they should be investing in real estate. Everyone knows you can make money in real estate. People are making money hand over fist. And there's a lot of people confused about how to really do it or what's the right way for them. So I'm excited for you to talk about your book and also talk about a few other topics that we have today. Great. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, hey, you know, this the main topic is recession proof. Warren Buffett's number one rule is never lose money. And so that's really why we want people like you on here that have seen the 2008 recession. You saw things go down and you saw people make poor decisions. And and the fact that you're still here and, and you did, you've done over $2 billion worth of deals says a lot about you and and that you're conservative and, and you make the right choices. So with that being said, I'm just curious, what have you most learned through the 2008 and, and possibly this last COVID scare? I don't know if I'd call it a recession because now we're booming, but what did you learn and what, you, what have you got for us? Yeah, so lots of things. Actually, in uh, 07, 08, 09, I uh, am a CPA by background. So I was really super focused on exactly what was happening every step of the way. Why was it happening? Did we see it coming? And we actually did. Most people saw the real estate crisis coming. But it was really interesting to learn all of the things that came together to make that happen and make it as ugly as it was. And it, it's also, if, if you haven't, I would encourage your, your uh, listeners to look at the book, Too Big to Fail, written by Andrew Ross Sorkin. Uh, they also did a documentary on it. it if you want to understand what happened in that recession and that uh, meltdown, read that book or look at that documentary. It's really, really, really something. So, Probably, what's what's the the biggest takeaway from that recession? And, and it's it's interesting because if you don't really study it, you don't understand what hurt most people. What hurt most people in that recession was that their loans matured at the wrong time. They didn't necessarily have cash flow problems. Some did, but some very good operators that had wonderful cash flow. Their, their debt happened to have matured at the wrong time, and the regulators wouldn't allow the banks to renew that loan. And they wouldn't allow it because they were failing loan covenants, because the regulators were no longer allowing people to have a set of book books and a set of tax books, right? Everybody knows that, that there's different rules that govern what you capitalize versus what you don't in the book world and the tax world. And right. so it's it's just common, right? That you would have a book to tax adjustment and, and the regular the uh, lenders would understand that. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they were so stressed about the, the thin nature of the capital of the banks, they made the, the, the lenders use 
tax numbers to underwrite these deals. And they were failing loan covenants left and right because people tend to expense more for tax purposes than they do for book purposes. And it just destroyed the numbers. That and they were just under direct orders to get those those loans off the books. No matter what, get them off the books because real estate was toxic at the time. So the biggest lesson I learned was to manage your debt and your capital stack very, very carefully. Give yourself, if it's possible, give yourself multiple potential strategies with that loan. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, I, I we tend to not use bridge loans. Why? Because they're kind of dangerous, right? They have short fuses, and if you if you don't get out of them on time, they tend to be very expensive. And there goes all the cash flow that your equity investors were hoping to get. So. Right. I love small balance loans, right? We love doing 200 under 200 unit size deals because I can get more small balance loans. A, they're very inexpensive to put in place. You can get them up to seven and a half million, I think is the number. And you can buy down your prepay. So that even puts you in a better position. And, and if you have to go over the SBL product, they have a hybrid program. So right. you can put a 20-year loan in place, fix for five years, then it floats. You may not appreciate the float component, but you're not forced to refinance at the wrong time. So I would probably say that is the number one thing that I watch really good, solid guys go down just because they just had debt maturing at the wrong time. And it was it was terrible to watch. Well, I really like that you brought this up because this is so important. There's people doing deals now where everything has to go perfectly. They, they're getting a bridge loan. Rents have to increase by 10% per year like they have been in yep. order for them to refinance out of that bridge loan. And if the market corrects at all, they're stuck with that bridge loan, which is crazy expensive if you try to extend those typically, or they lose the deal, or they maybe they can refi, refi into a, a better loan, or maybe they can't. So Yes, that's what happened in 2008. It's less, like you said, cash flow issues, less vacancy issues because everyone asked me, well, there's all this vacancy. Well, really, the vacancy wasn't that bad for a a normal apartment complex. It was that the values had dropped. Banks wouldn't underwrite the deals to the price that these people needed to redo their loan or sell the property for a decent price and get out of it. And they lost them to the bank because they they couldn't get the value. And, And it's sad. And like you said, good operators, people who operated a property very well still lost them. And so we we look at it the same way. We look we look at it at these deals as, you know, maybe we'll do a bridge loan once in a while. But the last three deals we did, they're ranging from 10 to 15 million dollars. We did 10 and 12 year fixed loans with three to five years of interest only. I mean, fixed. Uh, we would do floating, but we got fixed at, at one of them was at uh, 2.9%. So um, that's the beauty for the last year or two or a few years yeah. that lending has been fantastic. But we just want to be able to last out any recession. So that's why we want yeah. that long-term financing. We don't do three-year loans. We don't even do five-year loans, maybe a seven-year. But um, I love what you just said, because that's really, I, I tell all of my investors and and people that I work with were conservative because we saw what happened in that last recession and people got caught and they didn't caught, get caught because of poor business plans or doing bad things. They just needed to refi or sell or get a new loan at the wrong time. 
So effectively, what we're doing and you're doing, and and I think you you said earlier, you quoted Warren Buffett, that the number one thing you don't want to do is lose money. So one of the things that we do, and I always preach to anybody that we're helping along the way, protect the downside. Make sure you protect that downside. The upside will take care of itself because you're presumably going to do a good job. But if you don't protect that downside, that that will kill you because you just don't you just never know. Right. Right. Who would have predicted a pandemic? Right. Who would have predicted the entire economy shut down? No, because of everything that's happened, we're now okay. But, you know, we still have properties located in areas that are still struggling with getting people out because they don't want to pay. And, uh, you know, you just you just don't know. And and now we're looking at inflation and increased costs. So one thing that we just did for 187 doors that we're trying to put under contract is we looked at our rehab budget. It's a pretty heavy lift. I mean, it, it hasn't been updated in like 30 years. And we said, well, let's add 50% to that rehab budget because we don't want to get caught trying to refinance or we don't want to get caught trying to remodel and have run out of rehab money because of inflation, because mm-hmm. lumber prices have doubled and tripled and then doubled again. <laughs> and have, yes. I think there's a lot of people putting out business plans. I saw one yesterday where they're probably underfunding their rehab budget at current prices. And if inflation continues, they're going to be in big trouble. They will. Yeah. And inflation's going to be around for a little while. Yep. Yeah. It'll be curious. I'll be curious to see how the Fed deals with this because it's inflation. It's caused by different reasons than what they're used to in terms of uh, using their 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 tools to uh to control it. So yeah, that's right. probably another discussion for a different podcast, but right. it, it is going to be interesting to see how they keep this in check and, and hopefully they will. You know, one of the things that I also always tell people, and I think you're doing it is when you're doing these renovations, we always are, we, we are prepared to constantly reevaluate and adjust our renovation plans because these costs are going to change. Market's going to change. Demand's going to change. So many things are going to impact it. The other thing that's going to happen is you're going to learn so much more about that property. And so one of the things that we always ask people to do is just sit tight, sit on your hands for 30, 60, 90 days. Whatever the right amount of time is, is less important as sitting on your hands for just a minute and seeing what didn't I, what did I not learn during the due diligence? We all know that sellers don't tell you everything. And and in their defense, they may not know everything. So you figure out what's going on because then you, you, if you charge headlong in your renovation budget right away and spend all your money in 60 days, you might learn something at some point and wish you had reserved or reallocated funds to take care of whatever that issue is. So yeah, that, and it sounds like you're already doing that. And uh, I would encourage people to make sure they hyper-focus on it, especially now, because not only do you have all the other things that are, that are changing in your renovation, but now you're right. You have prices that are yeah. changing. And that's a big deal. Well, and, and I really like what you said and, and how you said it before we jumped on the call is, is don't just throw a bunch of money at the rehab as soon as you buy the property. You know, make make a good plan and then reevaluate it. And, you know, this morning I was on the on a call with my property on-site property manager in El Paso. And she's like, Sam, we're we're doing all the renovations you told me. And and I said, Margarita, that was October. And we closed on it in December. That Our plan is from six months ago, over six months ago. I need you to walk those units and shop the competition and tell me, are we still hitting the mark? Are we? Do we need to add different upgrades? 
can we do less upgrades? And guess what? We found out we actually can spend a little bit less money per unit and still be getting more rent than we had planned on. Same thing in Cleveland. We're actually getting like $150 more per month without doing any of the renovations that we had planned. So I, I really like what you said, because I feel like a lot of these new operators, they just have it in their mind. This is what I'm supposed to do when I renovate a property. We're going to go do it. And then there's five or six things that they absolutely missed and could have really added value to their property. You're right. You know what I think? And I've, I've thought about this a lot when I watch people do it. Why do they do it? Right. I always want to understand why did someone do that? Well, especially people that don't are, aren't as seasoned and probably some seasoned people do it too. But when you think about it, you, you've done a PPM, you've raised money, you've laid out your plan for your investors. And a lot of times I think they get concerned that if they tell their investors their plans changed, they're concerned that that might uh, erode the credibility with their investors. That, wait a minute, wait a minute, you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, and now you're going to do X, Y, and then PDQ. You're not even going to do Z? Wait a minute, what happened here, right? right. And I always tell our investors and, and our clients, I said, look, you're going to do this thing multiple times. You're going to do it when you do your LOI. You're going to set your renovation budget based on what you think you know. Then you're going to do it again after due diligence. Then you're going to probably do it again near at or near close. Yep. And then after, if, if you follow my rule and, and sit on your hands for 30, 60, 90 days, you're going to do it again. That's right. the minimum. That's four times minimum. You've adjusted that. And yep. most likely, you, you know, you can't tell your investors every single time you decide to use certain type of appliance over another, right? They don't care. They don't care about right. that. What they want you to do is make good decisions be very careful with their capital so that you know they get to where you pro what you promised them on their returns. So I think that might be the source of a lot of it. We tell our investors right up front, look, this is the plan today. It's going to change. Uh, we just did we just got out of a deal in Jacksonville. When we bought the deal, about two months into it, a hurricane came, whirled wow. through Jacksonville. Didn't hurt the property, but it impacted all the contractors. Oh, yeah. Because they had to go do emergency work. We it literally set us back six to nine months. Now, I'm thrilled that we didn't have any significant damage, but we had to put all new roofs on this property. And they actually had to come out and tarp the roofs. And the tarps made it through the hurricane better than most wow. people's roofs, if you can believe that. So my point is, imagine explaining to your investors how you're your, your 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 whole plan got pushed back six to nine months. It's right. it just is what it is. There was nothing you could do. There were no contractors to be had because they were all going, you know, and, and they were right up on the coast fixing things. So that's just one of the many examples of crazy things that can happen to you during a renovation. Well, and and I really like the question you asked is why are we doing this? And I think you need to re-ask that a, a responsible operator asks that month monthly. You know, why are we doing this? Can we save money? And and that's one thing I love about my my partner, Lyndon. Uh, he has his master's in accounting. You have your accounting background. Mm -hmm. I am more, let's get shiz done. Let's go 100 miles an hour. And Lyndon's always trying to save money. And he's holding uh, you back. <laughs> it's, it's a, well, it's a really good partner to have because, yeah. well, Sam, maybe we don't need to spend all that money. I'm like, you know what? I, I love saving money too. I'm just not the one that thinks of it first. It's always Lyndon. So, you know, we've started monthly 
reviewing with our property managers, do we need to be spending this money? Should we spend it somewhere else? You know, we allocated a bunch of money on on uh, internet advertising for our Cleveland property and we don't need it. So we're, we're no. canceling yeah. the internet advertising. We do need it yep. in, in Dallas. So anyways, monthly reviews is what I found is really good. And I love your question. Yep. Why are you doing what you're doing? And, and you, you need to review that often. One of the other things I would challenge your listeners, right? So we, we, we're in we're in central and northern Florida. We act, the company actually grew up in Cleveland, so I'm very familiar with Cleveland. Oh, nice. I'm always curious to hear what you're doing in Cleveland. But in central and northern Florida, the broker network there is extremely strong. And when they give you an offering memorandum, they really lay out the entire business plan for you. They do the you know they they do their job. They they really lay it out. And most of the time, if you just implement the business plan they put in front of you, you're going to be fine. But what you learn over time is brokers want to make sure you get to where you need to be. So they tend to offer too many improvements. Yeah. So a couple of things that I always share with people. Number one, do your renovation plans from the outside in. You've got to do that. Don't do them from the inside out because all that money you spend is going to be locked behind a door. And if the outside looks terrible, you're never going to get them to the front door. So yep. outside in, number it. one rule. Number two rule is do what I call do a hard turn, just make the unit fresh, nice, and clean and see how high you can get the rents. Ooh, I love it. Doing just that because the broker says you're going to put six, 7,000 inside a unit. I, I ask our clients timeout, timeout. Let, let's see if we can get to his number without even doing that. And I will tell you more often than not, especially in growth markets like Florida, Dallas, some of the places you're in, you're going to get those numbers yeah. because- a lot of those numbers are driven by demand and supply. And yep. if you do BC class assets like we do, there's increasing demand like crazy and no new supply. Absolutely. You're already you're already in a bull market. So now you just got to figure out what's the true in-place loss to lease so that you can then capture that and then figure out how much you're going to spend and where are you going to take it. So I've always found that if you do that, you'll surprise yourself in good, strong markets. In weaker markets, it might be a different story. Sure. But in those strong markets, you'd be shocked at how close you can get. So then you ask yourself, should I spend five grand to get 20 or 30 bucks? Hmm, maybe not. That's not a good use of capital, at least in my It's going to take a long time to make that back. It sure will. It sure will. So anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. No, I, I love that. And for our listeners that don't know what loss to lease is, if I have a lease in place for a unit at $1,000, but the market is willing to bear $1,200. My loss to lease on that unit now is $200 because I could be renting it for $1,200. So exactly what you're talking about happened in our Cleveland property when we closed on it. We actually had one of the three-bedroom units. We don't have a lot of three-bedrooms, but one of them, they just wanted in and we didn't have time to renovate it. So we didn't. We cleaned it up. And it was rented for eleven hundred when we bought it. It's now rented for nineteen hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. We didn't spend a dime. I mean, we spent a hundred bucks on cleaning it. That's it. Yeah, you and turned so, it. I love what you said there, and we're starting to do that more and more on this property, realizing we have a beautiful property already. Maybe they don't need updated granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. Maybe they just need a really good clean unit that's uh, ready to go. Uh, agree. So, so another thing for listeners who've been doing this for a while, I, I try to teach our clients when you're analyzing a deal, 
you've got to analyze that upside, right? It's always about the rent upside. Mm -hmm. So now your job as the sponsor, the underwriter is to figure out the risk in getting to that upside. So what I, what I ask people to do is break out your upside. I want you to figure out what the true in-place loss to lease is. So that's exactly the, where the apartments are now. Where, what, is, what do you really believe is true market value of that apartment? Now, right. it could be what the seller's already proven, or it could be over and above what the seller's already proven. So that could even create a third tier. So what you're trying to do is you're going to create you're going to break your loss to lease or your upside into buckets, into pools. And then you're going to, it's going to assign a risk uh, component to each one of those. So for example, if you have a seller in your example, you're renting it currently for a thousand, the seller's renting units all day long next to it, similar condition for 1100. That That's seller proven in place loss to lease. That's a hundred bucks. That's pretty low risk, right? Yeah. You're probably going to get that. You don't have to go. You don't. You can go to sleep at night and not worry about that. Then you've done your little market study and you've got out of your car. You've got in your car. You drove around. You see what's really going on, and you realize, you know what? That seller's still a little light. He could probably get twelve hundred. So now that's still in place. Lost the lease. Not as risky as value at upside, but now there's there's a little more risk to that. But it's not crazy risk at that point because yeah. it seems kind of obvious that that's where he should be at twelve hundred. Because what you'll find sellers do is right before they sell, either they're trying to get that last dollar of rent to prove it to you that is in place off the lease, or they've dropped rents a little bit because they want to make sure they're full because they want right. to advertise a full property. Right. So once you've broken out those two pieces, then you know what your true value add piece is. That is that is the highest risk component of your of your upside. Is mm-hmm. that is that value add that you're going to create because you haven't proven it yet, right? You, you haven't actually done a unit and, and done the outside, do whatever it is you're going to do, and then proven that you're going to get that. So I like to assess risk pools for these for this upside because you'd be surprised at how much of that that then that allows you to really understand how much value you're getting, and that way you can compare that to what you're spending to get that value. And, uh, you know, it's it, you're really, I know you're getting deep in the numbers here, but guess what? This is a numbers game, right? Absolutely. And the more you can understand about the numbers and the risk associated with it, the more comfortable that you're going to be talking to your investors about how risky this is to get there, right? That, that So I love it. something to think about. Yeah, man. I, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. I, I tell everyone, I, I think multifamily has the best risk-adjusted returns you can get. If you buy right. And and so what we're talking about, you talked about three tiers. The first tier is immediate, like renter walks into the property, you know, you can get 1100 a month. You go to other properties and you kind of find out, well, there's other people getting 1200 a month. I, I, st- I can still probably get that without doing renovations and spending all, all that investor money in the property and going through the work and the downtime of having a vacant unit. And I've seen a lot of operators choose to stop there. The Dallas mm-hmm. property we bought, mm-hmm. all they did was renovate the clubhouse. They didn't do the roofs. They didn't do any of the interiors because they realized they could sell, hit their ROI expectations for their investors and, and not have to spend all that money. And that was the smartest decision they could have ever made. Now we bought it and we have certain goals we have to hit and we'll get there some of the way by just that loss to lease. 
Mm-hmm. But what we've determined is we do have to complete our renovation plan to hit those numbers. But the Cleveland property, it's a huge bonus. It, it makes us feel so better. The risk is so much lower because we're getting to that target rent so much easier just because market rents are higher and, and naturally we're going to get there with or without doing a lot of those renovations. So I agree with you. I love the way you're looking at that, kind of categorizing the the, the upside and the risk factor of the deal. And a lot of people don't look at the risk. They just, I don't know. It's It's very interesting to me that people don't quantify the risk as much as, hey, I'd rather have a deal where I don't have to do anything. That's way less risk. And, you know, a lot of people just think you have to do the value add. So I like what you've said there. Yeah, I I think people don't think about the risk, because if you think about it, since about 2011, I mean, we're talking (laughs) the last 10 years, if you bought it, and you probably were going to make money, right? Well, it's a little harder now. So Uh it's a little tougher, and you got to really make sure that you nail it down. You had started this conversation with 0809. Uh, see, 0809 caused 11, right? right. It, it did. So yeah. if you had to get, you, you never know when that, now I don't think we'll have another 0809. I mean, we literally almost had a financial meltdown of the entire country, but we're going to have right. things that happen. And those yeah. those are risks that you got to protect the downside for. So I think that's why most people don't, they just don't think about the risk. They just charge ahead and, you know, kudos to them. You know, there it takes a lot of guts to do this. There's a lot of money involved and a lot of other people's money. So I give them credit for that. But I always like to understand the risk. Your partner, Lyndon, would love to probably be a, be assessing the various risk pools yeah. in the upside because that's what it's always about. It's always about the upside. Absolutely. And risk-adjusted returns, you know, and deals are not created equal. And so that's what I tell people, you know, and I'll have investors say, well, this guy is promising a 10% pref and you know, it's going to be a 20% ROI. And it's like, well, it's in the ghetto. Their PMs have to collect rent with a gun. You know, basically they have to protect themselves or, or you know, there's other risk factors. It's 60% vacant and there's a two-year bridge loan and they have to put 15000 a door into the rehab. That deal is not the same as our B class in Dallas that we just bought where if we didn't do any rehab, it's going to cash flow for the next 12 years. When we do the rehab, it's going to cash flow even better. But our risk on that deal for us, it feels very minimal. The returns maybe aren't quite as high, but don't just look at the returns. Also, definitely try and try and uh, look at your risk and quantify what the risk is for each deal. I use the term in our business, we generally are able, right? There's, we can't make promises here on any future deal, but we are generally able to create extraordinary risk-adjusted returns. Mm-hmm. That, that's a phrase that I use all the time. When you think about it, this is multifamily. Everybody needs a place to live. It's as bread and butter as you can get in real estate. Yet we're able to deliver 15, 20, 25, even 30% plus annual returns for our investors. Yep. that's out of whack with the amount of risk that you took. At least right. that's my belief. Again, you know, don't interpret that as, you know, you're always going to get that. This is not the way it goes in this business. But when you can do that, when you do this right, you can achieve those kind of results. And uh, you only have to do that once or twice and your investors really, really like you. Because <laughs> you're making, you're doing what you promised. You're making that, you're making a difference in their life. 
Absolutely. I love it. And, and, you know, that's one thing I started as a broker, just selling homes and, and then got into selling commercial and investment properties. And that's actually why I got into syndication is because I wanted to stop selling these fourplexes and 20 plexes and duplexes to my investors and watching them struggle to cash flow and, and call me a year later and saying, I didn't do my numbers right. So I wanted to provide a solution. And, and I thought, well, I, I'm pretty darn good at this. I've never lost. In fact, I've done really well. I would love to change my investors' lives and provide a very conservative, honest service to these people. And sounds like you do the same where you enjoy changing people's lives for the better and helping them build that retirement portfolio. Yeah, there's nothing better than getting a call from an investor. And he said to me, Ken, you already sent me my money back, but you just sent me another check. <laughs> I, I know I should have just cashed it, but I don't feel right doing this. I think you made a mistake. <laughs> and I said, no, sir, I didn't make a mistake. It's really your money. It's what we made on the deal. And uh, there's nothing that makes you feel better than fielding a call like that because it, it's just fun. It's awesome, right? It, that is it's awesome. awesome. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, to have investors calling you saying, I, I think you gave me too much money. That's great. I, <laughs> I, I love the one where we're, they're calling you and, and, and they're saying, hey, you know, did we really lose this much money? You know, did we? Yes, you're welcome. We lost so much money on this property. Look at your K one, and and just think, you know, send me a nice Christmas card, you know. But I have these investors that just can't believe the passive losses that are coming off of these deals, yeah. and it's a huge reason to get into real estate. And so, not only are you making these people more money than they could on their own, but they're getting way better tax benefits as well. And it's the double whammy of of amazing risk adjusted returns and amazing losses and passive losses through multifamily real estate. Yep. Absolutely. Well, well, let's talk about your book a little. You wrote a book and your main goal was to help people learn, you know, yes, I can make money in real estate, but what do I do? How do I do it? What's best for me? And help right. them decide and, and figure that out. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So the book, it's actually a short ebook. And uh, we give it away for free. So if you go to kripartners.com slash ebook, just give us your name. Of course, you know, our goal is so that we can uh, we can have the ability to, to become friends. You get the ebook. Now, here's it's interesting because as before I wrote the book, I thought, wait a minute. Everybody knows you can make a ton of money in real estate, right? This is not a yes. secret at all. Uh, but what most people struggle with is, how do they do it? And when I go on different sites, I go on bigger pockets or I go here, I go there. I see people trying to figure it out. How is what's right for them? And what I try to do is take the reader through in this book. Let's go through and analyze a little bit about your life, a little bit what, about whether you should be passive or active, right? When I, I'm sitting here telling you that there are people who have dynamite jobs who said, no, I want to quit my job and I want to go buy a duplex. I said, whoa, time out, time out. You're doing very well at your job. I've had physicians toy with the idea, yeah. right? And I and I say, wait a minute. Most of the time, and the book takes you through the analysis, most of the time, passive investing is right for people because real estate yep. is a business. It mm -hmm. is not a passive activity. It's not a hobby. It's, it's, 
It's really not, or or a hobby. It's not. It's it's not passive. I mean, people like us that do what we do, we deal with employees, with marketing, with maintenance people, with expenses, with roofs. I mean, everything you could imagine that that Apple deals with innovation, any other company in the world deals with, we deal with it with the yep. apartment complex. Absolutely. So for most people, it's passive investing. So then I say, all right, well, wait a minute. I don't want to leave you hanging here because that's great that passive investing is for you. But now how do you do that, right? Because that's the next thing they're trying to figure out. Do I buy a REIT into a REIT? What do I do? Do I buy a mutual fund? And so what I do is and we know that this private equity world it's not going to get any smaller, right? The Jobs Act of 2012 opened the doors here, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. And I'm thrilled for a lot of different reasons that it is the way it is. But you now have to become smarter about how to vet sponsors, right? And so I wrap up the book by taking you through this analysis about what to look for in a sponsor, what kind of questions to ask. You know, you know, the fact that experience really, really matters in this business, because, you know, as far as I'm, you know, early on in my career, I made a lot of mistakes. They were on my dime, not yours. That's important. Right. I want some I want somebody to learn on their own dime. It's not with somebody else's. So we go through that process and hopefully, you know, by the time you read the book, and, and again, it's only it's only it's less than 40 pages, so it's not a long read, but it, you have a pretty good feel for, okay, yeah, I think I understand now. When I talk to Ken at KRI Partners, I, I know what I should ask him. Right. Um, the, other, the other thing I'll just mention on, on the side here, uh, there's a company out there called Veravest. It's not a paid promotion, okay? But they're a company called Veravest. You pay them enough money and people do anything, but the company exists to vet sponsors. So wow. we we signed up with Veravest. They went through 23 years of our tax returns, our settlement statements, our operating agreements. I mean, it was brutal, right? 23 wow. years. Who has that kind of stuff? Well, yeah. I did because I'm an accountant. But <laughs> what they did is they went through our entire track record and ticked and tied it, right? See, that's important stuff for, for a passive investor. And then they ran a full criminal background check and everything else on us which I think is critical, right? So all these things are really important because this whole system of passively investing when private equity, we want investors to do well. We want them to be with good sponsors and all the little tools that we can bring to bear, i.e. Veravest. And and again, I don't have any any interest in Veravest, but they provide a massive service because now our investors can look on that site and they can say that the track record that Ken gave them is legit. Because somebody checked it out for us, so I love uh, it. Anyway, so I, I would encourage your listeners if they want the book, it's kripartners.com/ebook, and just hit the button and uh, give us uh, your name and email address is really all we need, and then you'll get to download the book and uh, let me know if you like it. Hopefully, uh, they do. Yeah, and I'll take a look as well, and, and I'll put the link in the comments for for this podcast. Oh, great! Should I put the link in there? Your website as well. You have a very professional, good-looking website. But I want to get back to um, sponsors, and so basically, this is someone that's pitching you a deal. And and if you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that want to make money using other people's money, and and they're very excited. And and I actually um, am am coaching for for Rod Cleef uh, for new people that want to get into syndication. You know, I've done over fifty million dollars in syndication with this nuts nothing compared to you, but. I do have some experience. And so a newbie can can learn a lot from me. And 
And the one thing that I keep seeing is a they want to raise money illegally, and b they're they're so excited to do a deal that they're kind of just fudging the numbers a little and hoping that that'll work out. You know, they're not really digging in. You know, we we look at a hundred deals to buy one. I mean, we're looking mm-hmm. at deals all over the U.S. Anywhere it's a landlord friendly state and and good job growth. You know, but a couple of my students have gotten pretty upset where I'll blow three or four deals of theirs out of the water and or just blow it out and say, no, I, I wouldn't do this deal. And they'll get pretty upset. And it's because they really want to do a deal. And, you know, so so that's something to look at. How bad do they want to do a deal? And have they really vetted it? Have they really come up with a solid business plan? And if I'm a if I'm a passive investor. I'm going to edu- educate myself. If I'm going to put my hard-earned money into mm-hmm. a deal with someone, I'm going to learn about them, which is what you just said, You know, really understand the sponsor, but also their business plan. What should I be looking for in a business plan? Have they researched the within one mile what the average income is? You know, If they're expecting to raise rents $300 a month, but average income is $18,000 a year in the area, true story, <laughs> we had a broker pitching us a deal like that. Mm-hmm. We blew it out because blew I said, "Look, I, I don't yeah. think I'm going to be able to get twelve hundred dollars a month when people are only making eighteen thousand a year in this area." It was it was a rough area. It was, you know, a, a army base had shut down and and people yep. just weren't making a lot of money. So, as a passive investor, definitely educate yourself. You and I kind of commented before this, like it's interesting how much trust people give you without doing their own research. And thank you for trusting us. I mean, I pride myself in being honest and and just answering anything people want to know about me or my business or my business plan, very transparent. But at the same time, I, I would prefer you do a little bit more research. So it's funny. I have these investors that grill me and they apologize for it. And I'm like, Hey, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Bring it on, you know, yeah, do yeah. it. You're doing a good job. And then by the way, you're benefiting these other investors because I'll record some of those sessions and Hey, you ask some really tough, good questions and good job. You're, mm-hmm. you're an educated, smart, cautious investor. And, and that's how I think you recession proof yourself is, is uh, you can be smart about it and, and you really take your time Absolutely. and be patient. Well, that's great that you're a coach with, uh, it, with, with uh, that group, because that's the number one thing I like to see people do is to get a mentor. A mentor. Mm-hmm. On my first deal, I had a mentor. Yeah. I paid him $3,000. He was an attorney. And uh, I, I, I had already done a year and a half's worth of research and networking and, you know, with the local apartment association. And I thought, I thought I knew, but I knew there was, I knew that I was so dumb that I didn't even know there were things out there. I didn't know. Right. (laughs) It's just the way it is. Right. You don't know to know it because you don't know it. So find someone uh, like yourself, you're acting as a coach for others. That's the number one thing they can do to protect themselves and and not get frustrated when your coach says beat you up and you know your numbers don't look right here's what they do here's what i don't like the other thing i see a lot of people do is they this this biz this is this is why i wrote the book people this is most people should be passive investors because Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of work when we look at deals i get in my car and i drive around and i knock on the door and i visit the leasing office and i go see the unit and I do all of these things that a lot of people don't do. So if you're a passive investor, when you're asking, help, have talk to the sponsor. If you start asking questions, I call it interrogation. 
because mm-hmm. I do it to people all the time. Right. But after a while, it becomes obvious this person is being very superficial with their answers. And that should be a clue that they really haven't do- dove into the details. I suspect if we ask you a question on any one of your deals, you know exactly why you've made the decision that you've made. You know exactly yeah. why that number is in your underwriting. That's what you have to do. You have Absolutely. to be that way. And if you don't, and, and as a passive investor, grill the sponsor, ask them, why do you think pest control is going to be what it is, right? right. And if they don't have, see, that's how you figure out one of the many ways to figure out if that if that uh, sponsor has done his or, his or her homework. Because right. every number on that P&L, you can prove with the exception of three that you have to estimate. You have to estimate R&M. You have to estimate unit turn costs and you have to estimate replacement reserves. So what I do is I roll those three things together Mm -hmm. because if you ask your partner, Lynn, and he will tell you, he can make a case for a garbage disposal going in any one of those three buckets of expense, put them together, come up with a number that is reasonable for the long term based on what you think the condition of the property is and use that number as your estimate. All the other numbers you can prove insurance, landscaping, pest control, payroll, every one of them you can prove out. It just takes a minute worth of work to do yeah. that. And and as a passive investor, try to figure out if your sponsor's done that. And if they have, you're you're in good shape as long as they've got experience because even though they've done their homework, things are going to change the moment they buy the property. And you want to know that that sponsor has the experience to pivot, right? Pandemic is a great example. We pivot, changed much of how we operated. And because of that, you know, we sold two assets out of the pandemic and made a killing because we pivoted. Because we pivoted, right? And that's key. I love because, it. Again, it's a business. It's not just an apartment building. Right. And and you brought up, and we probably are running out of time, but you brought up a topic or a point. People use averages and, and they're hoping that these averages work for their business plan or for their apartment that they want to buy. You know, we know in Texas what to look for our expenses should get close to 55 to 60% of gross income. But we also know there's other markets like Oklahoma city that have tornadoes and really high insurance. It's going to be more than that. So I see a business plan for Oklahoma city at 50% expenses. I know this operator probably is just hoping that he can use a 50% rule. Hasn't really gotten insurance quotes. As soon as they get ready to close, they're going to have a Oh shoot moment and realize that insurance is about double what what they hoped it would be. Another interesting point to make, and you said we're running out of time, so I'll try to be brief. If you think about the calculation, the expense is a percentage of income. So the expenses are what they are. But if you've got somebody that is running their property to keep it full 100%, their income Mm -hmm. numbers are low. So their expense numbers as a percentage of income might look very high. And if yeah. you're not careful, you might say, oh, that guy's running that, that thing's ridiculously over. There's too many expenses here. Right. I'm going to bump them down from 70 to 50. But you may not be able to because that percentage is based on uh, a depressed income number. Yeah, right? they should the income is where it should be, of. right? Think about what we do when we go and turn a unit and we raise the rent for $200. Does it cost us one more penny to operate that unit? before and after that rent increase, not one penny. No. But you do that 100, 200 times, we have significantly impacted that calculation that will run you into trouble every single time. And that's why we don't use them. 
That, that's why I always tell people I can take three properties, use the same in Cleveland. I'll give you a Cleveland example. One, the owner, it's a steam heat building. The owner pays the heat. Another one is a hot water system. The owner pays the heat. The third one, the tenant pays the heat. You use the same average on all those buildings and yep. very different things are going to happen. Absolutely. Well, and I think the moral of the story is it's going to take time, but you're going to have to learn the numbers. And some people don't have the patience for that. They probably should be passive investors. That's right. That's and that's what I find most people should be passive investors. I'm not yes. I'm not trying to talk anyone out of it. I'm just saying you, you make sure you're with a good sponsor, but most of the time you don't have the time or really the inclination to do that. It is a lot of work. Sometimes it's no fun, but it's a lot of work and it takes it, you know. I, I've been blessed. I did talking about mentors. I had done some really big developments, you know, multi $30 million, multi-million. I think we had done over $200 million worth of development, but still that was development. And I knew, I knew, I knew how to work with investors. I knew I understood investment properties and rentals, and that's what we were building and selling. But before I did a, a multifamily syndication on my own, I did, I did four without putting any of my own investors money at risk. And, you know, doing it myself, I did it with with your own money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mentors proven people who had already had a track record and I didn't have to say, well, I think this should work. This is what I've studied. This is what I think should work. I said, these guys have a proven track record. Let's work with them for a year or so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I want to learn what I don't know. And I think that was one of the best things that I think you said today was learn what you don't know. And, and cause those things can kill you. And um, now we're at the point where nothing can hit us that we haven't seen. And we love where we're at. We can always learn more, but, you know, crawl before you can walk. And Mm -hmm. sometimes there's a a price to pay for that. And usually the people that do best at this business find that mentor and take their time and get educated. And so I'm going to tell my, my listeners, uh, download your book, click the the link in the, uh, in the comments but I really appreciate you being on. And I just want to know, is there anything else you'd like to promote? Talk about deals. I know you're starting a fund. Anything else yep. we can promote for you? Yeah. So we are starting a fund. Um, we operate, uh, I'll be as brief as I can. We operate primarily in uh, central and northern Florida. And if you know anything about that market, it's really competitive to get a deal. Mm-hmm. So as a syndicator in that market, you're one of 10, 15, 20 guys that might go after a property. So we are doing the exact same kind of deals. We just flip the model. So instead of deal, then equity, we have the equity out in front of the deal. Now we come into that same sub 200 unit space and we're the big fish in the small pond, which is where you want to be because now that seller, when they go under contract with us, they know a couple of things. One, we're definitely experienced. And number two, we don't have the raise risk any longer. We've already raised the money. So that's the reason we're doing the fund. It's a, it's a first-time fund. It's a small fund. We'll close it between 10 and $15 million. Almost all of our syndicated investors have followed us, and, and we continue to expand our investor base very slowly because that's important to me that we do this the right way so mm-hmm. that we have our infrastructure in place to support what we do. And then, of course, we manage a couple thousand units throughout central northern Florida for third parties. So you know, if you or any of your folks need a third-party management in Florida, we're there for you. We have the experience and know how to get it done. Um, but, you know, right now we're primarily raising our fund. We're almost there about 85, 80, 85% of the way there. 
expect oh, nice. to be there within the next 30 or 45 days. And then, uh, and then hopefully we'll be able to deploy that capital fairly quickly. We'll see. I love it. And I love it. And, and guys, the, the power, the purchasing power behind a fund is, is fantastic. That's our ultimate goal is to do exactly what you're doing. Go from syndicating deal by deal and raising the money to raising the money in our fund and having that purchasing power. And, and so I'm excited for you and your investors to have that because I'm assuming you'll be able to win deals that maybe you wouldn't have won before but also maybe get a little bit better deal on off-market deals because sellers will have you know, confidence in you as, as a fund manager and, and a group that has that fund. And I think that's awesome. That's, that's exciting. Yeah, thanks. It, it, it is exciting. And uh, you, know, you just need that edge, right? You're in a competitive market. We're yeah. not going to walk away. I see a lot of guys walk away from Florida because they just give up. I mean, but we've been there for years and we are so networked now, not, yeah. not just with the brokers that are buy-sell, but we help them get deals done as standing next to them as third-party managers. Awesome. They send us their clients. They ha- we help them with their underwriting if they ever need it. So we're in a very different relationship with them. And that's the kind of stuff it takes to be in these competitive markets. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know how you could not want to have exposure to a market like Florida that has been growing at the rate that it is. This is not an anomaly. This yep. didn't just happen in the next last five years. This yep. has been going on forever. And I don't see anything happening that's going to change that anytime soon. Uh, so that's why we're there. And that's why we, we're trying to put ourselves in the most uh, competitive way uh, position possible so that we can get the deals that we need to continue to perform for our investors. I love it. I can't wait till you and I compete for a deal, but um, <laughs> I'm guessing you'll get it if you've got the fundraise. But you know, Florida's on our top list too. We just purchased our first deal there in, in Bradenton. Um, small little deal, but it got us into the market, got some local investors interested, and and we're really excited for Tampa and honestly all of all of Florida. We're we're really excited and we're we're with you there. We'd we'd love to get some more assets and Texas. I mean, I think honestly there's a there's a few markets that are growing. They're growing for a few reasons. Florida is definitely one of those. So, um, man, that, that's exciting. Really cool. Well, we're here for you if you need us on the third party side. Next time I'm out there, where do you live, by the way? I actually live in Cleveland. Our back office is still oh. in Cleveland. and But we our, our corporate office in Florida is in Tampa. You know, it's a two-hour plane ride. Well, I'm going to be Cleveland uh, on June 1st, 2nd, and uh, possibly the 3rd. Might have to talk to you. That would be great. Awesome. Well, hey, Ken, thanks so much for being on the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. You dropped some great knowledge, some some huge value, and I hope our listeners download your book, check out your website, your fund, and also if they have assets to manage in Florida, they they check out your property management side as well. Thank you very much. Awesome.